Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP-FM, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me from Montpelier, Representative Emily Kornheiser and Johanna Miller, the Energy and Climate Program Director with the Vermont National Resources Council. And we are going to talk about the Global Solutions Act, AKA H688. Welcome, Emily. Welcome, Johanna. Hello. (laughs) Well, I am so glad to be speaking with you both this morning because as I understand it, this Global Solutions Act, which is a big act around climate change and how the state is going to reduce its carbon emissions, um, this is supposed to be voted on today in the House, correct? Well, Olga, we voted on it in second reading yesterday, which is sort of the big vote. And then we voted on it again today, which is third reading. But that generally has a little bit less debate and the landscape has already been laid for how people will vote. Occasionally a no will move to a yes on second reading, but I think it's very rare that a yes moves to a no. And And so when we voted on it yesterday, the vote was 105 yeses to 37 no's, which is a significant veto-proof win. Fantastic. Now, after, if it passes the third reading today, does it go to the Senate or the governor? The bill will move to the Senate. Okay. Thank you. So, Johanna, give us a little context about this bill and what it's, why is it significant for Vermont and its, its fight against climate change? Thanks, Olga. Um, it's a really important bill. It's been a um, primary priority for my organization. Uh, we're a member-based environmental advocacy organization, and we collaborate with members and partners all across the state of Vermont, working deeply with communities and many of those communities um, with town energy committees, including, you know, many in your neck of the woods and very active one in Brattleboro, who are focused on transitioning off of dirty imported fossil fuels because of the fact that they are um, harming our planet, um, but also because of the fact that they um, are exacting a pretty significant economic cost as well. So um, because of the fact that we import um, our, the fossil fuels that we rely on so heavily, and that's a huge strain on our economy. So this is a bill that turns our, our climate pollution reduction goals, which we've had in statute since 2006, into requirements. Mm-hmm. Again, we've had a commitment to taking action on climate change in statute since 2006. It is now 2020. Our greenhouse gas emissions are far above what we have committed to in statute. And this bill says we're serious and it puts in place um, the framework for a process and a strategic plan to move forward and make progress finally to reducing our, our, our emissions. Mm-hmm. And what are the mechanisms of, uh, just broadly within this bill? I think it contains uh, like a 20-year energy plan. Um, 
There's also the creation of a climate council, I believe, or an action plan from the climate council. Could you talk about those I mechanisms? Think, yeah. Um, Johanna, before you jump in, I just want to sort of remind our listeners about some conversations that we've had about how difficult it is for the legislature to plan across topic um, or across government because we're all sort of sitting in our separate communities. We have limited time. And so I think one of the hardest things for us to do as a body, and I think one of the hardest things for state government to do if it's not really all on board and willing, is to look broadly and deeply about you know strategic planning. And so I'm really excited about this bill because it sets up the framework for us to do that strategic planning across state government and hold ourselves accountable to following through on that plan. Yeah. Fantastic. I just want to echo that it's a really important framework that will enable all different sectors of government, including the legislative branch, um, but puts the, the obligation on the executive branch to ensure that state government is focused on uh, climate pollution reduction. Um, and it does that by establishing a climate council, a 22-member climate council, which is comprised of eight um, secretaries and commissioners from the executive branch and 14 legislatively appointed either experts or um, people with essential perspectives in terms of how we should um, consider um, making progress and the kinds of programs and policies we should recommend. So it charges this 22-member uh, diverse council with developing and adopting a climate action plan with very specific recommendations to cut climate pollution and importantly focus on how we build sort of climate resilience in our communities how do we help our communities adapt to an already changing climate um, and it does set specific uh, target dates for required emissions reductions um, so 26% reduction by 2025, 40% by 2030, and 80% reduction by 2050. And it puts parameters in place um, and principles um, that will guide the council in how that happens, which is really important because, yes, we need to reduce our emissions because of the urgency of climate, but how we do that, how that really what that really means for all Vermonters is critical. And that's the charge of the Climate Council is to develop and adopt a climate action plan, very specific recommendations for cutting pollution, but in a strategic, thoughtful, equitable way that brings all of our communities, our rural communities as well, along. Thank you, Johanna. Emily, I would love if you would provide a little history on how this bill came about, because if I remember correctly, the Climate Caucus, Solutions Caucus within the legislature, did a lot of groundwork, both in the communities and in the legislature, um, before it put this bill forward. Um, so... I was not here in all the years leading up to this. Um, you know, I know that the goals were in statute and they were not being sort of funded or followed through on. Um, and over the last few years, we've 
passed a number of different bills related to mitigating the effects of climate change, you know, investments in weatherization, different things, but really learned from, you know, Vermonters, and I think all of us within the legislature wanted to be acting more strategically and having sort of these broader banner bills that we could fit all of the smaller pieces under. And so when the Climate Caucus went around this summer and did regional workshops um, and regional conversations about all of these issues, we brought the Global Warming Solutions Act as sort of an idea to all of those conversations to make sure people understood what we were doing as next steps. Um, Johanna, do you have more background on sort of the lead up to this? Because I'm sure you've been working on this for quite a few years. Well, <clears throat> I mean, the, the lead up to this bill is just, again, going back to the mid-2000s when we committed as a state in statute to reduce our, our climate pollution. And as Representative Kornheiser just noted, the legislature and the state and individual Vermonters have taken steps to do that. And um, we've made some progress. Um, and we've also fallen pretty dramatically short. We've made progress in cleaning up um, the electric sector. Um, so our utilities have been important partners um, with the state of Vermont and with Vermonters in terms of helping them um, access more clean, renewable, local energy supplies to power their lives. Um, and, and we're on target to meet the requirements um, um, obligated of our utilities to clean up their electric portfolios. And that wasn't by accident. That was by good public policy and public and political support. Um, so we've reduced emissions significantly in our electric sector. We have not done the same in the thermal and transportation sector um, in the way that we heat our homes, um, cool our homes, in the, way that, in the ways that we travel and get around. Those two sectors thermal and transportation are far and away our most um, carbon intensive polluting sectors. And we haven't made the same kind of progress. Um, in fact, our transportation sector is only about um, 5% um, quote unquote clean. Um, and we've committed again, both in statute in terms of greenhouse gas emission reductions, um, as well as through our comprehensive energy plan um, to make Far more progress. Our comprehensive energy plan says we're going to be 90% renewable by 2050. Again, we're only 5% there in the transportation sector, so we have a lot more to do. And so the, the reality is that we don't have any tools in our toolbox currently to require progress or to help Vermonters get off of fossil fuels so that they can save more money and access um, more options, you know, more efficient options. Um, so this bill is the Global Warming Solutions Act, which is a framework for, you know, strategic planning process and um, a foundation for making progress is sort of the, the result of recognizing that we've long talked about and recognized the need for reducing emissions, in particular in thermal transportation, and, and we've not made the kind of progress anywhere near the kind of progress that we need. And this is the sort of culmination of that recognition and 
and will set the stage for ensuring that that kind of progress is made. So, again, so what I've heard from a few people um, is that, like, why have we made a plan to make Mm -hmm. a plan? You know, like, what actually is the plan, everyone? (laughs) Um, And I think we sort of joke how that's, you know, the way government goes a lot of the time. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that, yes, this isn't a specific plan. It doesn't say we're going to invest this much money here and this much money here. And, you know, we know cars is this part of the solution. Public transportation is that part of the solution. It doesn't lay out that level of a plan. But I think the framework of a plan and the values connected to that plan are really important to acknowledge that are baked into this bill. The idea of resiliency and a just transition and making sure that this is going to be a plan that takes into account rural populations and marginalized populations and is not just going to be about electric car rebates for upper middle class people. I think it's really important to name that that sort of those values and principles are built into the framework that the plan will need to fall into. I think that's one thing I really appreciated when I was reading through the text of H688 um, was how clearly it laid out some of the intentions because one thing I, I think about climate change in general and the solutions to it specifically is that, you know, climate change is in so many ways an attack on Vermont's identity in the sense that we're so tied into our environment and things like maple sugaring and skiing and outdoor recreation and, you know, resilient communities, that climate change represents a real cultural shift, but so do the solutions have to be some kind of cultural shift as well. And so I think having those broad intentions in place will will serve the process going forward uh, immensely. Absolutely. I just want to underscore the importance of um, what Representative Kornheiser just said and how that's reflected and built into into the bill and into their required process um, and into the considerations that any plan must um, address, which is, you know, sort of equity, just transition, resilience, and strategies that will help communities adapt um, communities who are already, you know, feeling the costs and the consequences of our warming world through, you know, more intense, more frequent storms. I mean, I, mean, I think back even just last Halloween in that sort of <coughs> weirdly warm rainstorm that we all um, <laughs> remember, which resulted in, you know, the fifth largest outage event in Green Mountain Power's history mm-hmm. um, and tremendous impacts to our infrastructure and to people's property. And that came at um, a cost um, of like real inconvenience and impacts to, to many Vermonters and the cost to taxpayers and ratepayers of over $6 million and counting, I believe. So, I mean, the importance of taking action and committing um, to making progress in a, in a way that respects and responds to the needs of Vermonters today, um, but also the needs of Vermonters tomorrow. And I think um, it's, it's a really great foundation that the House has laid um, with those key principles embedded in it. Mm-hmm. 
I agree. Um, I have been hearing a, a theme just on the, you know, community community reporting part of my job, that um, there's this theme of while I think a lot of community members acknowledge that climate change does not affect everyone the same way, mm-hmm. so many of the solutions have been accessible to those who can afford them, such as like electric oh. cars. And yeah, I think and there's I still think a we'll disconnect go... around that. I think part of that is that um, because of the structure of our economy and the fact that, you know, certain people with money have more free time to engage in activism or in community conversations, which is the reality of Vermont right now, um, and certainly the reality of Brattleboro. I think that means that sort of public conversations about climate change often include a lot of people who might have, who do have very, very good intentions and understand, like you said about the impacts, but their lived experience of, you know, um, commercial interactions and whatever else um, is just sort of inherently privileged. And so I think it's really up to folks in the legislature, um, you know, activists who are working on this stuff every day to be thinking about the folks who don't have time to show up and be part of those conversations. Um, And I think that's really happening. I've been pleasantly surprised with the work of the Climate Caucus. I know that um, the almost everyone in sort of the activist lobbyist community who works on climate solutions is really deeply working in allyship with the economic justice folks Mm -hmm. in the building. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a real camaraderie there and they're really both pushing each other's agenda. And so I want to be careful that we don't equate sort of the middle-class community and media narratives around this stuff with what's actually like happening to push the conversation forward. Cause I think, um, cause I agree with you. Like that's how I see those conversations playing themselves out. But the solutions that I hear people talking about in the legislature are things like investing in low income weatherization and um, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just want to compliment that. Um, what representative Kornheiser just said to say as an environmental advocacy organization, one of our most important partners for many years, many years has been the low income advocacy community working very closely with our community action agencies, with the Vermont Low Income Advocacy Council, with affordable housing groups, um, including the Vermont Affordable Housing Coalition. I mean, we are not interested in making this transition on the backs of poor people who already bear a high energy burden or people who are struggling already. The goal is to make progress in reducing emissions, um, but doing so in a way that respects and responds to, um, you know, the realities of people's everyday lives. And just last year, for example, you know, it's it's not perfect, but it's we're taking steps forward. Last year, we worked with the community action agencies to advocate for a program that would help um, Vermonters with lower incomes access more um, high efficiency vehicles um, because they're yes, electric vehicles are out of reach for a lot of people. Um, although they're becoming more accessible because the prices are going down and the incentives are 
are strong, including incentives through our utilities, but they remain out of reach for a lot of people. So uh, the program that the community action agencies are now running um, with the support of the legislature last year is a program that will enable people to move out of their lower um, efficiency vehicles, maybe like um, some sort of like a Nissan into a Nissan um, Leaf or into a Prius um, that would be much more high efficiency. So moving from a vehicle that gets 25 miles to the gallon to uh, a used Prius that would get 45 to 50 miles to the gallon. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a step forward. It's not the full solution, but we're talking about making this transition intentionally and strategically and as swiftly as possible, but taking steps forward that um, respect and respond to the realities that people face. So I just want to say that um, that the role of um, the low-income advocacy community in all of these conversations is really crucial. They also will have a seat um, on the Climate Council mm -hmm. that is embedded within the Global Warming Solutions Act. Um, that's really crucial, having that perspective at the table and working with them as a conduit to the people um, in communities who are, you know, struggling paycheck to paycheck will be absolutely essential. Thank you. And, you know, just like a very tangible example of um, how, of just sort of the ideas around um, vehicle transitions and what that could mean for folks who are struggling. Um, you know, two years ago, I bought my best friend a $400 used Prius, cost $400. And it had like all of the sort of standard problems with it that a $400 car has, um, you know, that I think we're all familiar with. Mm -hmm. But she was able to drive it for another two years and really like never buy any gasoline. Nice. Because she just drove around town. And mm -hmm. so like when there are more, and I'm not really a, generally a big fan of the idea of like, we'll let the rich people buy the nice things and then it will trickle down. Um, but in this case, like if the market um, for used vehicles grows to include these other vehicles, it's, you know, they're just as reliable um, and will become as inexpensive as, you know, your sort of standard junkie Subaru or Volvo. Mm -hmm. that we see everyone driving everywhere. Um, so, Emily, as someone who's been working on this bill, what are you kind of hearing around concerns from people, like, such as, you know, how the, the bill divides power between the legislature and the executive branch, things like that? Um, so I think the big piece that people are... There's two, so towards that question, sorry, I'm like fumbling around at this one. Um, there are folks that are concerned with the fact that we have um, asked the administration to make a plan and that we're sort of ceding our power from the legislature. But we do that all the time. Um, you know, half of the bills in this building, sorry, it just got very noisy in here. Um, half the bills in this building are you know put forward by the administration we often ask them in legislation to think about an issue and come back to us because 
folks in the administration are working full time and folks in the legislature are very much not. Mm-hmm. And so in this particular context, we actually added more guardrails about um, the administration continuing to come back to the legislator to check in on issues. So generally things move to the rulemaking process um, and we should probably have an entire podcast about rulemaking sometime soon um, because it's, you know, sort of intricate and um, complicated, but they're required to come back to the legislature to sort of check in with rulemaking, which generally does not happen at all. Um, and so that's a way that we sort of built in a stronger back and forth between the administration and the legislature on this particular issue. Mm-hmm. And we can at any point say we don't like the direction this is going and pass a new bill about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a little casual because it's like an incredible amount of work to pass a bill, <laughs> but um, the option's available. <laughs> it's also important to, I think, remind people or let folks know that it's the the legislature retains um, this responsibility for any potential fees or revenues or, you know, revenues, revenue raising. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a really important and embedded interplay between the legislature, the executive branch and the climate council, which will, um, you know, it's, is will be sort of ultimately the responsibility of the executive branch, but there is an inextricable connection um, between these. So I don't see, you know, when people talk about the legislature ceding their authority, I, I just, I I don't see that the legislature has a fundamental um, um, role in a lot of the work that will be required to happen. And as well as, like any potential large policy um, initiatives that um, the Climate Action Council might recommend. So um, So to put a really fine point on that, I assume that some of the plans that come from the Climate Council will cost more than $5. And because of that, um, any need for any funding for any of the policies are going to need to come back to the legislature for for us to pass that through on our budget. Mm -hmm. And so that is like the sort of essential check on the entire process. Mm -hmm. Do we have an idea yet at this point in the process, how much this plan or this process is going to cost and or how we're going to fund it? Um, I think it's really important to, I mean, we don't know how much the, to executing the plan will cost. We have absolutely no idea at all. That's the work of the council. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's important to acknowledge that we have, um, all of these different policies operating right now towards the goal of mitigating climate change, but we have no idea how much they all cost together because we've never put them all together into a plan. Uh And then we also have all the costs of the impacts of climate change. Um, You know, the damage from the Halloween storm being a good example. Um, But, you know, we're still suffering from the impacts of Irene down on Brattleboro. So we still have all the costs of, you know, um, mitigating all of that harm in our budget, but we have not put them all together and said, like, how much are we spending on this? And are we doing it strategically? And so when we have a total, when we have a laid out plan and are able to really see a holistic budget, I think that would, that's going to shift the conversation. I, I think that's 
through. I would also just um, want to share a couple of other thoughts, which is that, first of all, this is not our first rodeo in this conversation. Um, <laughs> we have almost two decades worth of plans, analyses, research, commission reports. Um, we generally know what we need to do. We need to help people stop wasting a lot of heat and money by tightening up their homes. We need to transition them to more efficient ways to get around or have um, different options for getting where they need to go, whether that's walking or biking or ride sharing or, you know, um, we know we need to um, move to clean electrification for more, for more heating. Um, so we generally know what we need to do, and that's been informed by almost two decades worth of research and analyses. I mean, I mean, in 2007, Republican Governor Jim Douglas put together a climate commission, and that body of work um, and the recommendations embedded in that report are an important foundation upon which to build. And and we also have many analyses um, that have looked at the comprehensive energy plan and what we need to do and how we might pay for what we need to do. So we do have a sense of, um, again, what are the strategies we're going to need to embrace and what's the potential cost of that. And while Representative Kornheiser is right, we don't know exactly what this commission is going to recommend and, recommend and what kind of plan they might put forward. But importantly, um, yesterday there was an amendment put forward by Representative Bancroft that the House Energy and Technology Committee found favorable. It was voted on, on the floor, um, and that, I think by consensus, and that recommendation was to um, do a, a fiscal analysis of the recommendations of the plan um, and both its costs and its benefits. So that Vermonters will have um, information about what the potential costs of the plan and the recommendations might be um, and what kind of value uh, or benefits we would get from making those kinds of investments. So um, that was a really important um, provision that was added on the floor yesterday and it's intended to pay, paint a more full picture. Um, I think it would be really helpful and, and so I just want to Make sure that your listeners know that there's that and we also have you know about two decades worth of of research including cost impacts and analyses that give a sense of um, sort of the return on investment and the cost benefit of different strategies wonderful thank you thank you we need to go to hear from some of our underwriters right now but emily before we do that was there anything you wanted to add um, no, I think that um, I think we really covered it, and I'm looking forward to diving into um, the right of action um, section of the bill when we return to break. Fantastic! This is the Montpelier Happy Hour. Stay tuned. We will return right after. LPFM, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters. Our guest, Emily Kornheiser, had to hop off for a meeting, but I am still here. 
with Johanna Miller the, from the Vermont Natural Resources Council, and we're talking about the Global Solutions Act, also known as H-688. Johanna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ova. Let's dive in and talk about um, something Emily had mentioned uh, at the top of the hour, the right of, is it called the right of action? Yeah, the right of action or the cause of action. Yeah, um, tell us about that. So essentially, so this bill, again, requires, turns our long-standing climate pollution reduction goals into requirements. So again, as a reminder, we've had goals and statute to reduce carbon pollution um, and greenhouse gas emissions since 2006. It's now 2020. Our greenhouse gas emissions remain about about 13% above 1990 levels, which is um, we had a goal in statute to reduce by 25% by 2012. We flew past that goal. Our goal, our emissions are are, are significantly above where we said we wanted mm-hmm. to be. So there, the this bill recognizes that um, we need to turn our rhetoric on doing something about climate into reality. And as we talked a lot about, it sets the sort of strategic planning process and and, and ideally the, the result is a plan that lays the foundation for strategic um, forward movement. But the, the long and the short of it is that if we do not make progress um, there is a, a hammer in the form of the ability for a citizen um, to sue to compel action. That is, and that's called the right of action or the cause of action. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very narrowly tailored in the bill um, to ensure only that if um, if the state fails to comply with the requirements, um, individuals may bring action against um, the state of Vermont. Um, for two things. If the Agency of Natural Resources does not finalize rules in accordance with the rulemaking deadlines, or if the state does not achieve the greenhouse gas emission pollution reduction requirements of 2025, 2030, or 2050. So again, so there's two quote-unquote causes or rights of action if the Agency of Natural Resources has not completed rules um, required by the bill, by the potentially law um, within or by the deadline, and if we do not achieve our greenhouse gas emission requirements by 2025, 2030, or 2050. Mm-hmm. Importantly, however, the end result is, is would be the compulsion simply to take action, to set a different plan in place that would actually ensure progress is made. So there is no ability for anyone to sue the state for damages. Will the state be subject to financial penalties? No. Monetary damages, financial penalties are not allowed. Simply, if the ANR does not meet a rulemaking deadline or does the state does not achieve its greenhouse gas emission requirements um, by a certain date, the court may only order the Agency of Natural Resources to do the required rules or redo the rules if they're not sufficient. Mm-hmm. So I just want to put a very fine point on that. It's 
No one's going to sue the state of Vermont and make a ton of money. You know, the, the only thing that would be the result would be a compulsion for the state um, agency of natural resources to do the work they're required to do. And, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. And I would just say that, you know, the goal is to never, ever bring a lawsuit. The goal is to get serious about what we have been committed to ostensibly for a long time and we've right. failed to take seriously. So no one wants to bring a lawsuit mm-hmm. ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> the goal is just to do what we know we need to do, which is an opportunity as well. When you live in a state that imports 100% of the fossil fuels that are exacerbating the problem we're trying to address good point massive economic opportunity yeah well that is true we forgot uh to talk about that um at the top of the hour but but yes some of these changes we make to have more locally produced energy such as solar Mm -hmm. or or other renewables could be an economic benefit for vermont i mean study after study we talked a little bit about this shows that they will be. I mean, right now, again, we import 100% of the fossil fuels that we use because we don't drill, mine, or frack, mm-hmm. um, which is good for a lot of reasons, um, but also means that we're, in, we're very vulnerable because we import um, those resources and we're tethered to a market that we can't control. And about 80% of the dollars that we collectively spend on fossil fuels leave our state's economy. Mm-hmm. And that means that it's leaving the pockets of Vermonters who work hard for their paychecks. Um, it means that <clears throat> it's draining our economy as opposed to using less energy through efficiency and conservation strategies like weatherizing our homes or fuel switching to things like um, advanced or modern wood heat. I mean, we have a, a really important forest economy here and 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 there's potential to move people away from you know oil heat to things like um, pellets wood pellets that we can procure more locally that have a high efficiency and that importantly to my organization and to many Vermonters um, would come from sustainably harvested resources so Moving off of fossil fuels for heating, for example, into more fuel-efficient um, advanced wood heat systems or uh, cold climate heat pumps, which can um, be powered by more clean electricity or solar. And you know, right now our utilities have pretty clean and required to get cleaner portfolios. And when we're heating our homes with heat pumps, which my old historic office does, mm-hmm. um, you can stay warm and cozy and and um, use far less imported fossil fuels while doing it. Right. So thank you, Johanna. Now, moving forward, what's what's the process moving forward? Any obstacles uh, you see on the horizon? Touch, touch on that, please. Yeah, so um, we talked about the very strong um, and decisive vote that came um, out of second reading in the House yesterday, 105 to 37 um, votes. Uh, in support of advancing this bill. The bill goes to the House floor today for its third and final reading. Um, it's expected that the, you know, it would be surprised if those votes or that vote changed very dramatically. So 
the high likelihood is that the bill will move on to the Senate where they, where they will take it up for consideration, do um, their own uh, analysis of the bill and potential tweaks to it. Um, so it will go to the Committee of Jurisdiction, likely starting first in the Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee, um, and potentially make some other pit stops and other committees and ideally move to the Senate floor fairly swiftly and and the Senate, um, we hope, will follow the House's lead and send a strong message that this is an important priority for Vermonters um, and move the bill onto the desk of Governor Scott. Um, Governor Scott um, has said that he's committed to our greenhouse gas emission, our pollution reduction um, goals, mm -hmm. and he created a climate action commission of which I served with 20, 20 other members. And he said a lot of the right things, um, but I think it's falling short of the significant kind of policy and programmatic um, investments that we need to be making as a state. So ideally he would also support this bill and sign sign this bill when it comes to his desk. That's an open question. And mm -hmm. I think one that um, Vermonters who want the state to move beyond rhetoric and seize the economic and equity opportunity and taking strategic action um, that we make sure that the governor is hearing from us and that we are watching what he does in terms of this bill and other bills that are currently in consideration in the legislature. And is there a way you recommend people who want to make a comment to either the governor or um, the House or Senate? Do, is there any way you recommend they do that, any way that is the most effective? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, direct communication with your representatives, your senators, and the governor is really important, whether that's making a call, sending a personal email, um, and you don't need to be an expert mm -hmm. on the policy. You just need to, to care um, about the issue and to share your input on the kind of principles that you'd like to see um, in any sort of policy advancing. Um, so, but, but that's emailing or calling. Um, you can call the governor at 802-828-3333. Um, that's, I think it's really important for him to hear from his constituents that they care a lot about climate. And they'd like to see the Global Warming Solutions Act and other policy priorities move forward. If your listeners are interested, every Friday um, from the State House, we do what we call a climate dispatch, which is about a three to five minute Facebook Live and then posted on YouTube. Quick summary of what's happening or not happening on climate action in the legislature. And every week we add, we end with an action piece. And um, today we're going to give you the latest. Um, final update on where the Global Warming Solutions Act has landed and what you can do from here. You can find that at my organization's website, vnrc.org. Again, it's called the Climate Dispatch. Um, and that's just our attempt at keeping Vermonters who care about these issues abreast of things in a timely way mm -hmm. and giving them the sense of the actions that they can take that might help progress um, the conversation or the policy under consideration. Thank you, Joanna. Uh, I realize you have to leave for a meeting. Is there anything you wanted to add, wish I had asked before you go? 
I just think it's really important that, um, again, Vermonters stay engaged in this conversation, that they do as best they can to follow it um, if they care, you know, even spending one minute every week or every couple of weeks letting their legislators and the governor know um, that they'd like to see progress on climate is really um, important. Again, you do not have to be an expert. I also think that <clears throat> that it's really important to, to watch how people vote and to go to the polls informed in November and always if you care about environmental issues because of the economic and equity and inextricably connected them as well um, that go to the polls informed we have a big election in November for many reasons mm -hmm. if you want to go informed about climate and environmental policy I highly recommend folks check out the Vermont Conservation Voters who tracks the um, records of legislators and how they vote on these crucial bills there will be um, a record showing who voted in support of the Global Warming Solutions Act, turning our longstanding goals into requirements. Um, and that will just give people a sense of, um, are they being represented um, by folks who are doing what they can on these issues? And again, really crucially, ensuring that we make progress in a way that you know protects and prioritizes the diversity of Vermonters, including rural um, rural constituencies and lower income earning Vermonters. So um, this is really critical. So I just highly recommend that um, making sure that people are you care, being tuned into how your elected officials are voting on these issues is crucial. Thank you very much. Uh, Johanna Miller, Vermont Natural Resources Council, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Olga. Have a great day. You too. That's all the time we have for today's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP-FM, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters. I want to thank you for joining us today. I want to thank our guests Johanna Miller, the Energy and Climate Program Director with the Vermont Natural Resources Council, as well as regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, representative to the State House for Brattleboro, or one of three, I should say. We will be back next week at 2 p.m. with a new bit of geekiness for you all to enjoy as we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County. You can contact me through our Vermontitude SoundCloud page or our Vermontitude Facebook page. You can find Emily Kornheiser at Emily Kornheiser on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Gmail, and as well during her office hours at the co-op on uh, the Brattleboro Co-op on Saturday. Have a great weekend, everyone. See you next week.